Hi everyone, this week I want to talk about a possibly groundbreaking study that may revolutionize the way that we think about the DSM-5. So a few years ago, something happened to the autism diagnosis. The criteria changed. The criteria of three different domains, the social, communication, and restrictive and repetitive behaviors domains, were condensed into two, the social communication and repetitive and restrictive behaviors domains. Those that did not exhibit repetitive behaviors were to then receive a diagnosis of social communication disorder, or SCD. Also gone were the subconditions of Asperger's and PDD-NOS. At the time of this change, many studies had gone back retrospectively and re-diagnosed people. In other words, they used existing data on pieces of paper from people that had been diagnosed in the past and used the things reported on these pieces of paper to determine if they were diagnosed under DSM-4, depending on their symptoms, and whether or not they would also be diagnosed under the DSM-5 criteria. There were some inconsistencies in their results, partially because of the way people with autism were identified and also because there are additional features like hypersensitivity or hyposensitivity that were added as criteria on the DSM-5 and probably wouldn't be recognized on the DSM-4. So some studies said that those that were previously diagnosed with PDD would not have a diagnosis of autism under the new DSM-5 schema. Others showed that they, yes, still would have been diagnosed under DSM-5. I'm not going to say lose the diagnosis because anyone diagnosed with autism in, say, 2000 would still have autism in 2015. However, parents were understandably concerned that if clinicians were to be asked to re-diagnose people under DSM-5, some people may lose services. That never happened. A group of people also liked the term Asperger's and didn't want to be classified as autism. So there was a lot of controversy in this area, I'm sure you can all remember. However, there was consensus going forward in one area. Researchers needed to take new referrals and go through both the DSM-4 and DSM-5 symptom checklists and see how many met both or one or the other. In addition, each person needed to be evaluated by the ADOS and also by IQ to determine if there was a discrepancy between DSM-4 and DSM-5 diagnosis that could be taken into account. Well, someone finally did this study. It was a lot of work and it took a lot of effort. It was done by the Autism Treatment Network, which is a network of 14 research sites around the world who have a registry of thousands of individuals with autism. They focus on understudied medical conditions like diet, GI issues, seizures, and other neurological issues. They come from the most respected hospitals that help people with autism. And in addition to their registry, their goal is unravel medical problems and help provide guidance to doctors who see patients dealing with these medical issues. They've contributed to consensus guidelines, which help shape clinical care plans, toolkits for families, and specifically just one released by Autism Speaks on health needs of people with autism. They also work hard to develop new ways to reach underserved communities through things like telehealth. So by prospectively evaluating children with autism on different criteria, one for DSM-4, one for DSM-5, they eliminated some of the issues of retrospective analyses. Their results found that 75% of the people that would have met criteria for PDD-NOS under DSM-4 no longer met criteria for autism under DSM-5. This doesn't mean they lost a diagnosis. If they got PDD-NOS before the DSM-5, 
they still have autism. However, now you're talking about a group of people who may have gotten diagnosed with PDD-NOS, which is under the autism spectrum under DSM-4, but may be now either not diagnosed or diagnosed with something else called social communication disorder. These findings open up a lot of questions. And lucky for us, Dr. Micah Mazurik from University of Virginia, who just moved from University of Missouri, agreed to discuss them. What did she think about all this? And she's going to go through it step by step. The vast majority of children who met DSM-4 criteria for one of the subcategories of autism continued to meet DSM-4 five criteria for ASD. Um, so about 89% who did meet on DSM-4 continued to meet on DSM-5. Um, so overall, this really told us that the ultimate diagnostic decision for most children would not be affected by these changes. Um, in contrast, about 20% of those who had Asperger's disorder diagnoses did not meet criteria for DSM-5 ASD. And the biggest discrepancy we found was for children who had a PDD uh, diagnosis according to DSM-4. And for that group, we found that most of them, 75% um, of them, did not meet criteria on DSM-5. They were under DSM-4. And in some ways that will be helpful because it should ensure, ensure more consistency across clinicians, um, meaning that you should receive the same diagnosis regardless of which clinic you're seen at or what clinician you may be seen by. But it also does suggest that children with more ambiguous symptoms or more subtle symptoms may not meet criteria for ASD when they might have previously been categorized under PDD. Our study does show that girls are more affected by the changes to diagnostic criteria than our boys. And this really um, indicates that we need to do a, a lot more research on potential differences in symptom presentation in girls. In terms of what this means for people who would have met criteria under PDD-NOS, our results show that many of them will no longer meet criteria under DSM-5 for an ASD, but that they may be very likely to meet criteria for another alternative diagnosis. Um, and in our case, ADHD was the most common alternative, surprisingly not the new social communication disorder diagnosis as many had predicted. Um, hopefully, with more specific and precise criteria, an individual's services and treatment plan really can be best matched to their specific diagnosis and individual needs. Overall, the findings do show that it will be slightly more difficult for those who would have been diagnosed with PDD and Asperger's disorder to be diagnosed under DSM-5. Um, but overall, when we looked at the entire sample of children who were evaluated, um, most of them will continue to meet criteria under DSM-5. Um, on the other hand, uh, it's interesting to note that some changes to DSM-5, including um, the addition of sensory symptoms, could make it easier for some children to be diagnosed with an ASD, whereas in the past those symptoms were not included. Now, in my own opinion, what does this all mean? Well, it's clear that the diagnosis of autism may be getting more specific. One of the things that was a huge improvement in the DSM-5 was the use of clinical specifiers. Under DSM-4, there was no way to add things like IQ, age of onset, or verbal ability. It was those with higher IQ that did not meet the criteria in this study under DSM-5, which is probably not surprising, given that those would have been the ones that were presumably diagnosed with PDD, NOS, or Asperger's. Unfortunately, there was also differences in diagnoses in girls. Fewer girls were diagnosed with DSM-5 compared to DSM-4, and this is a big issue. 
Now, I'm wondering aloud if this group, the ones with PDD-NOS, high IQ, good language ability, but maybe some semantic problems and social awkwardness, constitutes a different type of autism than what's being captured by DSM-5. I think that everyone can agree that autism is a spectrum with different ends, and there's been questions about how to cut the different pieces of autism to different types, and perhaps this is the different type of autism. Audrey Thurm and her colleagues recently wrote about the use of the words high and low functioning as categories. However, many people are insulted by these terms. The bigger issue, they say, is that they're not even scientifically valid, which is probably true. They should be divided by language, IQ, and ASD severity. In this latest study, they are divided on IQ and even symptom severity. Those with milder symptoms are diagnosed at older ages, which make things more complex. I, like others, think it's time to start categorizing people, and maybe those with a high IQ seem to have a different kind of autism than others. And speaking of autism diagnoses from all types, I had the honor of attending the annual ASA meeting, Autism Society of America, and I got to attend some of the sessions. They were all guided by science, but in a more applicable way than I think I normally get across in these podcasts. For example, there was a session about the hidden agenda in employment. This doesn't mean how to get a job technically, but how to do well in the job and keep it, especially if it means working with customers and dealing with things that make people with autism uncomfortable. Stephen Shore and others made sure that people with autism should get to know themselves as much as possible so they can learn to advocate for their own needs. There was also a number of sessions on love and relationships. I skipped those because I actually don't want to talk about or hear about my seven-year-old doing anything but living with me forever in chastity. Social media and safety information was included, and I was happy to see that one of the exhibitors was exhibiting a home security system designed to alert parents when doors and windows are opening. There were also sessions aimed at clinicians and service providers about implementation of therapies, like social skills curriculum, support groups, sensory play, and how to advocate for yourself during an IEP, which is incredibly important. I was really happy to be there, and I hope that ASF can be more involved next year. Specifically, I'm thinking about a session about how using science to advocate for services for your child or yourself as an adult. Stay tuned because I need to work with an actual expert in advocacy on this one. Talk to you next week.